Hi, crime junkies. It's Ashley here. And you all know how ready I am at any moment to drop down the rabbit holes of mysterious cases to look for answers. And there's actually one right now that I cannot stop spiraling about with more rabbit holes than I can count. In this season of Counterclock, investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra begins investigating Doug Wag Jr.'s mysterious death after he was found struck on a strip of railroad tracks. But the more Delia has dug into this case, the stranger things have gotten. And you guys, there is truly so much going on. A string of mysterious deaths, a bank robbery gone wrong, conspiracy, corruption, and it may all be connected. You can binge all of Counterclock Season 6 right now in the Crime Junkie Fan Club, or you can listen to new episodes weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by the Capital One Venture X Card. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. Plus, receive premium travel benefits like access to over 1,300 airport lounges and a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. Unlock a whole new world of travel with the Capital One Venture X Card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Lounge access is subject to change. See CapitalOne.com for details. Instead of costly private tutoring, IXL Learning can give your child the help they need at an affordable price. IXL is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. It's designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way with positive feedback. And you get one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. There's a reason why IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And Crime Junkie listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash Crime Junkie. Visit IXL.com slash Crime Junkie to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Sometimes it's challenging to connect with friends and family who aren't native English speakers. So learn their language with the most trusted language learning program, Rosetta Stone. Their efficient, immersive lessons are used and beloved by millions. The True Accent feature even provides feedback on your pronunciation. Learn on the go with convenient, flexible, and customizable lessons as short as 10 minutes. For a very limited time, our listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash crime junkie. Hi, crime junkies. I'm your host, Ashley Flowers. And I'm Britt. And the story I have for you today is, well, honestly, it's simply tragic and infuriating from start to finish. It's a case that spans decades. And although there is just one murder, this is a case that absolutely has multiple victims. This is the story of Juan Rivera and the murder of Holly Staker. On August 17, 1992, Don Engelbrecht is working the evening shift at a local tavern in Waukegan, Illinois. It's a typical Monday night, probably a little slow. But just after 8 p.m., Don sees something totally strange and unexpected. Her five-year-old son, Blake, 
He's been brought there by one of Dawn's neighbors, who says that she found him outside, locked out of their apartment. And Dawn is totally confused at this point. See, earlier that evening, she had left both Blake and her two-year-old daughter Taylor with the babysitter for the night, this 11-year-old girl named Holly Staker. So if Blake is here with her neighbor... Then where's Holly? Exactly. That's probably one of the many questions running through her mind. Like, where in the heck is the babysitter I am paying to look after my kids? And if my five-year-old is here, then what about my two-year-old? Right. So right away, she calls the house to try and get a hold of Holly and find out what the heck is going on. But the phone rings and rings and rings, and there's no answer. At this point, that rage or frustration is probably turning into worry and panic. Because this isn't the first time Holly has babysat for her, so it's really unlike her to just bail on these two kids. Her heart is pounding as she tries to phone again and again, and there's still nothing. So finally, she decides to call Holly's mom to let her know what's going on, and the two of them decide to meet at Dawn's apartment. They arrive at around 8.30 p.m. and enter the apartment together, and it's almost completely dark inside. There's just this flickering light coming from a television set that's been left on, but it's enough to see that several pieces of furniture have been overturned. Panic immediately sets in, and these two moms start moving through the apartment, desperate to find their children. Before long, Dawn finds her daughter Taylor in one of the bedrooms, completely unharmed, and this wave of relief washes over her. But again, there's still that question, where is Holly? Nancy is still frantically searching the place, going from room to room to room, screaming Holly's name. But there's no answer. So at that point, they quickly contact police, who arrive within a few minutes. At this point, everyone is gathered in the kitchen with the police trying to calm Nancy down. I mean, she thinks Holly's been kidnapped, but police's first thought is maybe she ran away. But then as they're talking, something occurs to Dawn. What if in her panic to find Taylor and amidst all the chaos of the moment, she overlooked something? Maybe there's still an explanation for this. Yeah, I mean, that's honestly totally understandable, especially if, you know, her sole focus is finding Taylor. Like, I mean, I don't know if I could even pay attention to anything else if I was looking for one of my kids. Yeah, and that's what Dawn's thinking. So she kind of slips out of the kitchen and down the hallway into Taylor and Blake's room, this time more aware of her surroundings. The first time she searched that room, all she felt was relief and joy finding her daughter alive and well. But this time, that feeling is replaced by something else entirely, just dread. Because when she pulls back the bedroom door, she cannot believe she missed it. It's Holly. What, like Holly hiding? No, Holly is curled up in a fetal position on the floor. And when Dawn reaches down to touch her, the first thing she notices is how cold Holly's skin is. What Dawn doesn't notice is that her son Blake has actually followed her into the bedroom. And before she can even stop him, he walks back into the kitchen and says to the cops and to Nancy, she's dead, Holly's dead. And just like that, this Waukegan home is now officially a crime scene. According to reporting by Andrew Martin and Karen Brandon in the Chicago Tribune, the investigators get to work immediately processing the scene, and they definitely see signs of a struggle between Holly and her attacker. Like I said earlier, there was overturned furniture in the home, but they also discover that the back door to the apartment appears damaged, like it was forced open. On top of that, investigators uncover a lot of physical evidence at the scene. They collect 74 fingerprints as well as samples of blood, semen, tissue, and hair. 
And they even find a kitchen knife in the yard which they believe was used to murder Holly. The autopsy turns up even more evidence of how horrible this crime really was. The pathologist finds that in total, Holly had been stabbed 27 times with wounds to her heart, stomach, liver, and lungs. There's also hemorrhaging around her neck, which the coroner says is a sign that she was forcibly held down or possibly strangled. And she has defensive wounds on her hands and on her arms. And the pathologist also finds evidence of sexual assault. Okay, so two questions immediately jumped to my mind. Holly was stabbed 27 times. Wouldn't that leave massive amounts of blood in the apartment? Like, did Don and Nancy not see any of that when they first arrived? So that's exactly what I wondered. But the crime scene is never really described as being covered in blood or anything like that. I mean, there's one description of the scene where it says that there was blood in the bedroom where Holly was found, as well as some near the kitchen sink, like someone had maybe washed bloody hands. And there are a couple of like bloody streaks on a staircase banister. So... My assumption is that Don and Nancy simply overlooked it. Like, it again, it wasn't this, like, completely horrific crime scene. Well, and also they had this tunnel vision of finding their kids. Right. And remember, it was super dark when they first arrived. And there's a lot of panic. There's a lot of chaos. So, again, I, I think that they could actually overlook it. Okay. So my second question is, I mean, you said this is taking place in, what, 1992? Is there any hope at all? that all these samples investigators have can be tested for DNA? Yeah, so DNA profiling is still in its infancy at this point, but police would definitely have that in their toolbox. And listen, with all the physical evidence that they're finding, investigators definitely feel like this is going to be a really simple case to close, which is good because as you can imagine, the community is reeling over this crime. So in the first week after Holly's murder, police are working around the clock. They follow up on 155 leads and log 1,700 hours on this case. They actually even set up a roadblock at one point, stopping motorists in the area and just straight up asking for any information or tips that they have. They also questioned a number of men in the area, but there's still no one that they would consider a prime suspect. Okay, what do you mean? Like, are these men that were close to Holly or the family she was babysitting? Police don't elaborate on who exactly they are. I'm assuming that maybe these are people in the area who have criminal records, maybe a known history of violence, that sort of thing. But Mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter because regardless, it doesn't get them anywhere. So what about all that physical evidence they found? Did that not turn up anything? Well, not yet. So investigators are still waiting for the results to come back. And as the days turn into weeks, tension in the community continues to mount. The school year is starting, so parents are watching their kids, like, walk out the door every single morning, all the while remembering that Holly's killer, someone who was capable of sexually assaulting an 11-year-old girl and stabbing her 27 times, is still out there, still walking the streets among everyone else. Then, in early October, nearly two months after Holly's murder, someone finally comes forward to say that they have information about Holly's killer. Or rather, they know someone who has the information. This tip comes from a guy who's being held at the county jail. And he says that his former cellmate, a guy named Juan Rivera, boasted to him that he knew who killed Holly. Lucky for police, Juan is pretty easy to track down because he's just a few hours away at Hill Correctional Facility in Galesburg, serving a three-year sentence for burglary. So police head there to talk to Juan and find out what he knows. In that initial meeting, police are convinced that Juan actually could have the information they need. So they transfer him back to the county jail for more thorough questioning. 
According to Andrew Martin's reporting for the Chicago Tribune, as police press Juan for details about what he knows, he admits that on the night Holly was murdered, he knew where she was babysitting. And police are kind of thrown for a loop, so they ask him how he would know this. And police say that Juan's response to that question was that he, quote-unquote, just slipped. Just slipped? What does that even mean? Well, I think investigators interpret it as Juan admitting that he just made a mistake by saying that. Like, he slipped up by letting them know. And at this point, they start thinking Juan isn't just a source. He's actually probably a suspect. So they're no longer casually asking him for any information he has. They're straight up interrogating him. And it's during this interrogation that police say Juan's story really falls apart. At first, he offers an alibi and says that he was at a house party on the night of Holly's murder. But police look into that and discover that there was no party at this house on that night. So next, he says that he was actually riding around the neighborhood on his bicycle that night and that he broke into a car and stole some speakers. But again, police look into that and there's no report of any car break-ins that night. They keep pushing, and finally, after four long days of questioning, it's over. Juan Rivera signs a confession admitting to the sexual assault and murder of Holly Staker. So on October 30th, after 10 weeks of investigation and more than 500 leads, police arrest Juan and charge him with two counts of first-degree murder. But here's the thing. That confession and arrest, that is not the end of this story. Not by a long shot. There's nothing better than getting away with the family for a much-needed break. And when it comes to travel, every family has a happy place. Whether it's a five-star resort with a kids' club or an all-inclusive spot by the beach. Wherever your happy place is, Priceline wants to help get you and your family there more often. And thanks to Priceline's family-friendly options, you can save up to 60% on family-friendly hotels. You can even sort by room type, amenities like pools, and get access to deals you can't find anywhere else. With Priceline, you never have to miss a trip. Don't let prices get in the way of that family trip you've got your eye on. Priceline truly has deals you can't find anywhere else. I have used Priceline for a long time now, for personal trips, for just trips for our family, even group trips. Like every year, my husband and his siblings plan a big trip where we all go somewhere together and we live literally all over the continent. So I love having Priceline in my back pocket to make sure we all get everything we want out of our family reunion trip, especially when it comes to where we're all staying. So download the Priceline app today and save up to 60% off family-friendly hotels and go to your happy price with Priceline. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams, or timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. 
After Juan's arrest, the state attorney holds a news conference and details how the murder unfolded. He said that Juan just happened to be in the neighborhood where Holly was babysitting and saw her while he was outside. Apparently, Juan spent a lot of time in that neighborhood and actually knew Holly. And not like friends, really, more like acquaintances. Okay, can you clarify something for me real quick? Mm, Yeah. So how old is Juan at this point? So he's 20 years old at the time of his arrest, which I think what you're pointing out is that sticks out to me as well. Like what business is a 20 year old man having being acquainted with an 11 year old girl? Yeah. But apparently lots of people in the neighborhood were familiar with Holly as well as her sister Heather because they were twins. So Juan, like many others, would have at least known of them. Now, ultimately, the state's attorney says that sexual assault was the motive in this case. And then he gives this like creepy statement, like the attorney himself does, that goes so far as to describe Holly and Heather as, quote, attractive young ladies, which I don't know how anyone can think that's like an appropriate way to describe two 11-year-old children. And just to clarify, this is the state's attorney calling them attractive, not Juan, right? Yeah, 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 the attorney. Okay, so I'd just like to confirm the 90s were pretty gross. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's a little dumbfounding. Anyway, he goes on to say that Juan and Holly spoke briefly, and then the two went into the apartment, and that's when the sexual assault happened. He thinks that the murder itself was unplanned, that he stabbed Holly with a knife that he found in the kitchen, basically so she couldn't tell anyone about the sexual assault. And did Juan have any history of sexual offenses or violence prior to this? No, nothing like this. Andrew Martin and John Gorman say in the Chicago Tribune that earlier in that year, Rivera had been convicted on a burglary charge and sentenced to 30 months probation. And then in July, he was arrested again for a similar crime and he was eventually sentenced to a three-year term, which, again, we already know that he was serving for when police questioned him. Okay, but if he was arrested in July and Holly was murdered on August 17th, can you explain to me how that works? Well, so he wasn't actually in jail that whole time. His probation officer at the time had recommended Juan be placed under house arrest. But this does lead to the first significant kind of wrinkle in the case. You see, as part of the house arrest program, Juan was required to wear an ankle monitor that ensured he always stayed within 150 feet of his home. So police would know right away if this guy left his house to, you know, I don't know, commit a horrific murder. Well, you would think, especially since the house where Holly was babysitting at was over two miles away. But here's the thing. These monitors were notoriously easy to tamper with. From what I understand, there are like two devices, the monitor itself, which would be worn by the person under house arrest, and then the dialer, which is what notifies authorities if you leave that established perimeter. Right. The dialer would be like the like homing device. That's where you have to be. Right. But you can unplug the dialer, and I guess it won't notify authorities until either six hours have passed or the dialer is plugged back in. Uh, are we allowed to give an award for the most ineffective monitoring system? Right? Now, apparently, even the company that manufactured these monitors recommended that they not be used and then stopped making this model in 1989. And the police just didn't get the memo or what? Well... In their reporting for the Chicago Tribune, Jerry Thomas and Andrew Martin imply that it was probably a cost decision that kept the county from upgrading their system. Like, apparently they had purchased the monitors for about $45,000 in 1986, and then to replace them with new ones would have cost another, like, $40,000. So just because they didn't want to drop another 40 k one, and honestly, who knows who else could 
theoretically just leave their house and the police would have no way of knowing. Well, not even just theoretically. Juan had left his house before on at least one occasion, July 27th. And police knew about that one. Because again, it's not that the person wearing a device could leave and no one would notice. The alarm would trigger either six hours later or whenever the dialer was plugged back in, whichever came first. So do police have any record of him leaving on the night that Holly was killed? Well, it depends on who you ask. Juan's attorney says no. He is adamant that the computer logs show that Juan was home that evening, all evening, that the device was working properly and that there were no attempts to tamper with the monitor. But the state's attorney says that the device was removed on August 17th in time for Juan to commit Holly's murder. Okay, how can there be any uncertainty, though? Either there is a record of the monitor being removed or tampered with or there isn't. I mean, it seems pretty cut and dry to me. Well, that's the attorney's point. Police are saying that they have information showing the device was removed on the night of Holly's murder, but they don't actually follow up and provide any actual record of it. The only thing they officially document is that on August 18th, the day after Holly's murder, the strap on Juan's monitor was found to be loose and then was replaced on August 19th. But again, to me, that's not the same as a record showing that he actually left his house. Right. And the strap could be loose for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. Okay, so setting all of that aside, there was all that physical evidence. Like you said, there were fingerprints, blood, tissue, hair, even semen found at the scene. And now that they have their guy, I assume they must have matched at least some of those samples to Juan, right? Well, it's all still pending, which like, I get the DNA stuff. This is, you know, at the time, new tech. But what I can't totally wrap my head around is why comparing prints would be so delayed. All I do know is that authorities say in mid-November that they've completed and analyzed some of the physical evidence, but they won't confirm if any of it is a match to Juan. And at this point, Juan's trial is drawing closer. On November 18, 1992, he officially enters a plea of not guilty. But he did confess, right? Well, he did, but his attorney and family say that those incriminating statements were coerced and that he didn't understand the significance of the confession he signed. And listen, I mean, you and I and every crime junkie listening knows that a signed confession isn't always what they're cracked up to be. But from the prosecution's perspective, that confession is all they need. And they're moving forward with the case, regardless of whether or not the DNA test results come in. And on December 31st, they announced that they will be seeking the death penalty against Juan, which they say they've decided based on Holly's young age and the brutality of the crime. But that assumes that they even get to trial. See, it was originally set to begin on January 25th, 1993. But then, as that date draws closer, the prosecution and the defense both ask for a delay. Are they both just not ready? Well, yeah, because they're still waiting for the DNA results from their lab almost three months after Juan's arrest. And listen, at this point, it's becoming kind of clear that this isn't even a case of like, oh, that's just how things were back then. Like, this judge is just as infuriated in 1993 as we are here in 2022. According to Robert Enstad's reporting in the Chicago Tribune, he literally refers to the lab and says, quote, don't these people realize there is some urgency, end quote? I'm sorry, put that on a t-shirt for me. <laughs> yeah, but apparently not because the prosecution says the test results could be another 30 days. So the trial is delayed. And it's delayed again when the defense tries to have Juan's confession thrown out because they say it was coerced. 
Now, of course, the investigators say that the whole thing was above board. No funny business, just good old-fashioned police work. They say that he was treated well, read his Miranda rights, provided with food and drink. And in his own testimony, Juan even backs up some of these details. But overall, the defense still says that the confession itself doesn't hold up to scrutiny because they say that it was signed after four straight days of intense police interrogation. And by intense police investigation, I mean intense enough to cause Juan to have a complete mental breakdown. At one point, he was found slamming his head against a cell wall so violently that he had to be restrained. Oh my God. This episode occurred just hours before the actual confession, and he was given two different drugs to address anxiety and psychosis. His legs and arms were restrained so he wouldn't hurt himself, and he's described as laying on the floor of his cell in this nearly comatose state, like eyes wide open and just a blank stare on his face. Okay, yeah, I can totally see why the defense would be trying to get that thrown out. But there's something that's been bugging me about this whole thing. Like, it's not like this interrogation and the confession all took place, like, in the Wild West of the 1800s or something. Is there no recording of any of this? There isn't. And that's something Juan's attorney brings up, too. Like, if Juan was so cooperative, then why would he have refused to allow his confession to be recorded? Which is what investigators have been alleging this whole time. Like, it was Juan's decision that they didn't have anything on tape. So literally, the only document they have is a typed confession written out by one of the detectives and signed by Juan. Now, around this same time that all this is happening, there's yet another twist in the case. And this one comes up when Juan's defense team alleges that they know of someone else who may be responsible for the death of Holly Staker. Andrew Martin and James Hill reported for the Chicago Tribune that, according to court documents filed by Juan's defense team, police received a tip early in their investigation from an informant that a Waukegan gang member had been bragging to his friends that he had killed Holly. And I'm assuming this is a different informant than the one that pointed police towards Juan. Correct. This informant is only referred to as John Doe, and the man he alleges committed the murder is never named. But according to the court documents, John Doe told police that on the evening of Holly's murder, he and this unnamed man, the one who he says killed Holly, were at a party. The unnamed man was using LSD and eventually left the party for a time and then returned wearing different clothes. And then several days later, at another gathering, he started bragging about having committed the murder. On top of that, Juan's attorney claims that this unnamed man told several other people about committing the crime who also reached out to law enforcement. Okay, so did the police follow up on this? Yeah, they say they checked out plenty of other people, including this LSD party guy, and they concluded that none of them were involved. Police are confident Juan Rivera is their guy. And not just because he confessed to the crime, but because they now have evidence physical evidence, they say, that definitively links Juan to Holly's murder. The living room is where you make some of life's most beautiful memories, but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. Take it from someone who has made the mistake. And I should have freaking known better because in our very first house, we got a sectional from Ashley's store and it was amazing. So beautiful, withstood a lot. I mean, Chuck is absolutely invited on all the furniture, but you couldn't tell. And that couch, after years of service, then supported our lazy butts during COVID when we binge watch show after show after show. Not even so much as an indent in my favorite cushion. Long story short, when we moved houses, I was like, oh, I'll get a new couch. It costs more money. It must be better. No. 
I hate it. It looks like we've had it for a zillion years. Meanwhile, the Ashley couch is still thriving at my brother's place. And as if their stuff wasn't quality before, the new high-performance furniture from Ashley Store is somehow even better. It's designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Listen, I have corrected all of my mistakes, and we now have their new high-performance durable furniture. I got it in this beautiful shade of blue. I got some chairs. Love them, love them, love them. So whether you're hosting and toasting or just enjoying furry friends, you can relax knowing you have the durability and convenience of Ashley Store's newest assortment of high-performance furniture. Shop the life-resistant, high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Spring is about fresh starts. That could mean starting a new venture or switching things up on your website. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Use Squarespace to design a website, engage with your audience, and sell anything from products to time all in one place. With the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint, you can select from curated layout and styling options to create a personalized website optimized for every device. Get your website discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools. Plus, make checkout easy for customers with easy-to-use payment tools. Accept credit cards, PayPal, Apple Pay, and in certain countries, give customers the chance to buy now and pay later with Afterpay and ClearPay. Selling content on your website? Add a paywall to sell memberships or courses or sell downloadable files. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash crimejunkie to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Apparently, police got their hands on a shoe that Juan was wearing the night of the crime, and on that shoe, they found traces of Holly's blood. I mean, I guess who needs a confession when you have Holly's DNA on... A suspect's clothing. Yeah, it's not Holly's DNA exactly, though. The sample found on the shoe apparently wasn't large enough for technicians to say that it 100% was her blood. But they tell the media that their testing narrowed it down to a tiny segment of the population. And that segment would have included Holly. Okay, that is definitely not the same thing, though. Like, how... No. Tiny are we talking? (laughs) Yeah, okay, here's the thing. Juan's attorney says that this tiny segment of the population could include Holly, yes, along with 50 million other Americans, literally 20% of the U.S. population at the time. Okay, so how did they get from, we found Holly's DNA on your shoe, to we found DNA on your shoe and we're confident that it's Holly's, even though it could be literally 50 million other people? Your guess is as good as mine. And honestly, this is almost the least sketchy part of this, because at this point, it's not even clear that the shoe that they have, the one that they tested, even belonged to Juan. Wait, what? Yeah, so it isn't a shoe that they found, like, at his house. According to more of Andrew Martin's reporting for the Chicago Tribune, they got it three months after the murder from another inmate who said that he had gotten the shoes from Juan in a trade. Like, while they were both in prison together? Yeah, he says that apparently he gave Juan a television in exchange for the shoes. Which, I kind of have a hard time imagining inmates just, like, walking around with their own personal televisions. I mean, I know they have television sets in prison, but, like, I guess I always thought you were, like, issued, like, standard clothes to wear, standard shoes to wear. And it seems like Juan's just like, oh, yeah, I brought these from, like, 
back when I was out of prison. I'll trade. It just doesn't sit right with me, right? Yeah. But that's how he says that the shoes came into his possession. Yeah, the whole thing feels kind of sketch. But does this mean the only thing tying Juan to the murder is his maybe not super above board confession? Pretty much. But luckily for police and the prosecution, despite all the claims that the interrogation was coercive and abusive, despite Juan claiming to not even remember signing it, the judge rules that it can be used in the case. The other piece of their case is testimony from Dawn Engelbrecht, the woman whose children Holly was babysitting when she was murdered. She claims that she saw Juan near the scene of the crime that night and that he had asked her what had happened. Which is supposed to prove what exactly? That he was nosing around after the fact? Well, I think the prosecution sees it as proof that Juan had left his house that night, regardless of what the monitoring system records indicate. But it doesn't even matter because before the trial even begins, Dawn ends up recanting, saying that she can't say for certain if Juan was the person that she saw at the scene of the crime. And so now they no longer even have that. By this time, the judge is so frustrated by all the delays and the mudslinging back and forth between the defense and prosecution that he's like, you know what? I'm out. And he actually becomes the fourth judge to be removed from the case. Wait, the fourth? Yeah. So there were others that were removed early on, mostly for like technical reasons, like conflict of interest. But thankfully, the fifth time is the charm because finally, in November of 1993, more than a year after Juan was charged, his trial actually begins. Naturally, a lot of the trial focuses on what happened when Juan was brought in for questioning. The prosecution hammers home the fact that Juan lied to investigators early in questioning when he provided alibis that were provably false. And then, of course, there's the confession itself. And although there's plenty of room to argue whether or not it's on the up and up, it is still a confession. So did Juan mention anything in that confession that only the killer would have known? Well, yeah, so kind of, yes. According to investigators, Juan provided details that they say hadn't been made public at the time that he confessed. For instance, he had told them that he damaged the back door with a mop handle in an effort to make it look like someone had broke in. And then he also says that he stabbed Holly using a knife that he found in the kitchen, which he says broke in two and then he tossed in the yard. And those details are consistent with what investigators discovered at the scene. Okay, but we already knew those things, like the forced entry, the knife in the yard. We knew, like, the broad strokes. Like, police said publicly that they had found a kitchen knife in the yard, which they believed to be the murder weapon. But what they hadn't said was the fact that it was broken into pieces. But here's the thing. Without a full recording of the interrogation and confession, I can't help but wonder if investigators maybe led him to those details, let those details slip. Because it's not like Juan provided any new information. Like, police don't say that Juan provided them with any information they didn't already know, just that they had these details that the public didn't know. Right, so he could have been asked leading questions or something. Exactly. And it is important to note here that Juan's IQ was below average, at just 79, which may have made him more susceptible to that kind of interrogation. Again, we just don't know. So after poking these holes in the confession, the defense has Juan's family testify that he was at home with them on the night of Holly's murder. And then they finally address the thing we've all been waiting for, the physical evidence. And it turns out all of the evidence, the blood, the hair, the fingerprints, the semen, was not a match for Juan Rivera. Oh my God, like how is that not just 
an immediate deal breaker. Right? But the prosecution argues that technically, Juan could have killed Holly without leaving any blood and semen at the scene. And so just because he doesn't match the evidence found, that doesn't mean that he didn't commit the murder. Okay, but if he didn't leave the semen, I don't know, found inside an 11-year-old child, who did? My thoughts exactly. In Karen Brandon and Andrew Martin's coverage of the trial for the Chicago Tribune, they say that the prosecution argued that the semen technically could have been there for days before the murder. And I just, I genuinely don't know what prosecutors are thinking at this point. Like, either someone else entirely sexually assaulted and murdered this little girl, or at the very least, someone else committed statutory rape, and it's almost like they're just shrugging it off. Yeah, like, to be honest, I'm, I'm almost speechless. But to summarize, there's no physical evidence linking Juan Rivera to Holly's sexual assault and murder. Mm-mm. There are no witnesses who can say for sure that they saw him at the scene. Nope. There is an ankle monitoring system that has no record of him leaving the house. Correct, but they have that confession, and it turns out to be enough. Because after nine hours of deliberation over two days, the jury returns with a verdict of guilty. And although the jury ultimately decides against the death penalty, Juan is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. But the sense of relief and justice that Holly's loved ones feel doesn't last forever. doesn't even last three years. Because in November of 1996, the court reverses Juan's conviction. Why? Dennis O'Brien and Andrew Martin say in the Chicago Tribune that the ruling is based on four technical errors made by the judge during trial, mostly around allowing the admission of some hearsay evidence and limiting the defense's opening statements. These things are minor enough on their own that, like, it wouldn't have been considered grounds for a retrial, but together they're problematic enough to lead to a second trial. And I have to imagine that Juan's defense team is thinking that this could be a real opportunity for them. Because even if there's no new evidence, four years have passed since this shocking crime. So maybe that pressure to just punish someone isn't as strong now. Maybe it will lead a jury to consider the actual evidence or lack of evidence. Juan's second trial begins in September of 1998, a little under five years after the original verdict was returned. And it ends up being quite similar to the first trial. However, the prosecution does introduce two new witnesses, one of whom says that she not only saw Juan Rivera at the crime scene, but actually saw him murder Holly. Blake and Taylor, the two children Holly was babysitting the night of her murder, are the witnesses. Blake says that he saw Juan outside their apartment not long after Holly's body was discovered. But it's Taylor's testimony that is truly mind-boggling because she says that she remembers Juan picking her up and placing her on the bed where she would later be found by her mother, Dawn. Okay, Ashley, you know I have a weirdly, weirdly vivid memory. Mm -hmm. And I can remember things from when I was pretty little. Yeah. But even my earliest memory is like from when I was like maybe four or five. Taylor was what, two? Two, yeah. How is that even possible? Exactly. I I can't even tell you. And at this point, it's been six years since it's happened. So it's not even like she's three and trying to say this or four and trying to say this. Like, it's hard to imagine taking this testimony terribly seriously, which Juan's defense attorney points out when they got her to admit that she had previously said Holly's killer may have been a black man. 
which Juan is not. But apart from this absolutely bonkers development, the second trial covers a lot of the same ground. The prosecution focuses heavily on the signed confession, and the defense team tries to discredit that confession, and again reiterates that there is still no physical evidence tying Juan to Holly's murder. Nothing. And this time, the case does seem to sit a little differently with the jury, because they deliberate much longer this time, for almost 36 hours. And the lack of physical evidence is absolutely something that they struggle with this time around. But again, they feel like it's hard to argue with a confession. And ultimately, they come to the same conclusion, that Juan is guilty. And so once again, he is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. It's welcome news for Holly's family, who is still dealing with the pain of not having her around, not seeing her grow up alongside her twin sister, Heather. But the second guilty verdict probably seems like, I don't know, proof that the person responsible for Holly's death is sitting behind bars where he belongs and where he'll be for the rest of his life. That is, until March of 2004, when Juan is given yet another chance to clear his name. It's a beautiful moment. Your baby is taking their first steps. And then comes the not-so-beautiful moment. Blowout, diaper leakage, messy stuff where you really don't want it. Thankfully, this can all be avoided with a parent's must-have diaper, Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 have up to 100% leak-free fit. The blowout barrier in the back helps prevent leaks no matter how active, on-the-go, or wild your baby moves. Josie pretty much skipped crawling, and the girl is now full-on running. And Pampers Cruisers 360 has saved me from some very massive, messy situations. So as soon as your baby starts standing or walking, get them in Pampers Cruisers 360. Because unlike other diapers, there are no diaper tabs. Instead, they have a stretchy 360-degree waistband that you can pull on so easily. Add Pampers Cruisers 360 and free and gentle wipes to your cart or pick them up at your local grocery store or big box store. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. If you've been wanting to update your wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune, Quince is for you. Build up a lineup of timeless pieces that keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year, like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. And the best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes those savings on to you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. You all know I love my cashmere pieces from Quinn's and Ashley can't get enough of their bodysuits, but I have two words, washable silk. I can't get enough washable silk dresses, skirts, and blouses from Quinn's, and I used to like save silk for special occasions, but since these are washable silk, I'm wearing silk like every day. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash crime junkie for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash crime junkie to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash crime junkie. Six years after Juan's second conviction, Northwestern University's Center on Wrongful Convictions decides to take up his case. 
And they're motivated by the same issues that have plagued this case for more than a decade at this point. The lack of physical evidence, the four days of constant interrogation that led to the confession, not to mention that one of the key witnesses at that second trial was an actual toddler at the time of the murder. Uh, yeah, super glad that just didn't get swept under the rug here. Same. But I guess what I'm wondering is, why do they think that this time will be any different? I mean, like you said, nothing's changed. Yeah, there's no physical evidence, but... That was also true at the first two trials. Well, here's the thing. Something has changed. Technology. The science behind DNA testing at the time of the original trial was so primitive that it required really large sample sizes, whereas in 2004, they can do a lot more with a lot less. So all this physical evidence that was collected from the original crime scene gets tested again. And I mean, once again, it reveals no connection to Juan. And once again, Lake County officials say, it doesn't matter, we've already got our guy. I mean, I know I shouldn't be surprised, but here we are. You know, I know, it's becoming like a very predictable pattern at this point. But the courts aren't quite so confident, and they order a third trial. And of course, this time the physical evidence even more definitively rules out Juan Rivera. But the truly infuriating thing is that when the prosecution tries to again explain away the fact that a different man's semen was found inside Holly's body, they also make this argument that Holly was the type of girl who might have had sex with a different grown man prior to Juan murdering her, and they base this on the fact that she was apparently molested when she was eight years old, and that she had previously masturbated. Like, first of all, there's no such thing as consensual sex with an 11-year-old. That is sexual assault no matter what. Second, what does it matter if she was molested in her past or if she had masturbated? Like, So she's gone through trauma and then you're like, again, slut shaming her because of that. I'm as raging as you are. Mm -hmm. Same. And on top of that, like someone, someone's semen was found inside of her. Someone other than the person who has been convicted twice of killing her. Like, even if the person who assaulted her didn't kill her, there is still someone out there who assaulted her. That we can't connect to anything. And at this point, we're talking 12 years after the fact, and no one's been looking for that person. Right. Like, have they not entered this DNA into a database or something to see if it's a match for someone else? So from what I can tell, they actually had, the defense actually pushed for this, not the prosecution, of course. And after a federal court order, the DNA was entered into both state and federal databases, but there had been no match. So... All of this aside, for the third time, the prosecution relies pretty much solely on the confession as a basis of their case. But there is one really interesting update to the physical evidence that I want to mention. See, remember how I said that Juan confessed to trying to stage the crime scene to look like there was forced entry? He apparently said he used a mop handle to kind of like damage the back door at the apartment, which authorities later found when they were processing the scene. Yeah, well, according to the Chicago Tribune, a forensic specialist testified that there was evidence of multiple attempts to force the door open. We're talking footprints on the door, a screwdriver that was used to pry it open. And obviously that doesn't line up with Juan's apparent confession that he saw Holly on the street and followed her into the apartment and then staged the break-in after the murder. Now, it's totally possible that those footprints and screwdriver could have been there before the murder, but like... That would be a pretty big coincidence, right? Oh, totally. But ultimately, the jurors still have a hard time getting their heads around the idea that an innocent man could confess to murder in detail and then sign his name to it. And so, for the third time in 16 years, 
Juan Rivera is found guilty of the sexual assault and murder of Holly Staker. And for the third time, he is sentenced to life in prison without parole. Hmm. Holly's poor family. We're living that trauma just over and over and over again. Yeah, I mean, it's heartbreaking. And following the sentencing, Holly's mother Nancy reads a victim impact statement in which she says, quote, Put him away for life and let us live. Let us never have to go through this again. End quote. I mean, I truly do feel for her pain. I, I can't imagine not only losing your child in such a horrific way, but then having to have that wound open over and over again. Like, But it's just so hard to feel like justice has actually been served here. I mean, especially since we still don't know who left their DNA inside the body of an 11-year-old child. Yeah, I agree. My heart breaks so much in this case because you can tell like Holly's family really thinks it's Juan. It really wants it to be Juan. But there are just so many questions. It's almost like, honestly, they need it to be Juan, you know? Yeah, but they're just not trying to answer the questions, right? Like if you have your guy, let's answer all this stuff. Because what's so infuriating is that in a Chicago Tribune article filed by Lisa Black and Ruth Fuller, Assistant State's Attorney Michael Murmel says prosecutors are not required to prove whose DNA was found inside Holly. He says, quote, as it turns out, for a third time, that really does not alter the outcome, end quote. And so I return to someone else sexually assaulted this little girl. But it's OK because you were able to convince a jury to convict someone else. I could rage about this for the rest of the episode and I could go on and on for hours. But like to take a real quick tangent, this is probably the one thing that makes me like pull my hair out most about the legal system, the true crime community. Like this to me is so clearly a prosecution looking for a win over everything else. Like they don't really care who killed her. Or again, if you're going to say Juan killed her and you are so convinced because you have whatever evidence you think you have, fine. But again, someone else sexually assaulted her. It really feels like they're not looking for that person because that's going to poke holes in Juan's case. Well, and to bring up something that was brought up earlier, the whole motive for the murder was the sexual assault, right? Right. So, I mean, unless they're saying like, oh, he still assaulted her but didn't leave semen. Like, is their whole motive gone? Right. Again, I like I, I hate when... We should be looking for the truth no matter what, no matter where that points. And again, if it is one, okay, fine. Let's find the guy who killed her, but also let's find the other guy who sexually assaulted an 11-year-old girl. And clearly, the only reason they're not doing that is because it would weaken their case against this other guy. So we're just going to let, what, a guy who's going around having sex with children run free? Like, I feel like I'm losing my mind here. <laughs> no, no. And, and, and you're right. Like, I personally could spiral on this for days because I cannot understand the logic of, like you said, again, if Juan did kill her, we still have someone out there who has assaulted a child. Mm -hmm. How is that not also worth looking into? I know, I know. To get back to the episode, Juan's legal team is not going down without a fight. They have to be just as infuriated as you and I are. So they appeal the verdict. And in December 2011, the court actually throws out Juan's conviction, stating that, quote, no rational trier of fact could have found the essential elements of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt, end quote. And finally, we have somebody who's like thinking with their brain. Rational trier of fact also needs to be on a T-shirt, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but when you say throws out Juan's conviction, is that like trial three was iffy, try again, or a full, he did not do it, stop saying he did? The latter. The court actually bars prosecutors from trying this case again. 
Now, that doesn't mean that the prosecution can't request that that ruling be reconsidered. And at first, they say that they're debating what course of action to take. But ultimately, they decide not to challenge the decision. And so on January 6th, 2012, Juan Rivera is released from prison. At this point, he's 39 years old and has been incarcerated for almost half his life. But this still isn't the end of the story. I mean, it can't be. This has suddenly become a 20-year-old unsolved murder. Right. And investigators do start reworking the case. But I actually mean it isn't the end of Juan's story. See, by 2014, Juan has filed a federal case for wrongful conviction. And that case leads to multiple explosive allegations about the original investigation. For example, two years after Holly's murder, a man found a bread knife buried in the bushes just steps away from the crime scene. And I assume he knew about the murder. It would have been hard to live in Waukegan at the time and not know about it. And that's why he turned the knife over to police. Now, from there, you would expect the knife would have been tested for forensic evidence. But not only is there no record of the knife being tested, it turns out that police actually destroyed the knife. Destroyed it? Mm-hmm. Juan's legal team was never told about it. And it seems like even the state's attorney didn't know about the knife. And what's more, a forensic expert hired by the defense said that Holly's wounds are actually more consistent with this type of serrated blade than with the straight-edge blade originally found at the crime scene. So this could have been a crucial piece of evidence. Could have been. We'll never know. But that's not even the worst part. Because the DNA that was recovered from the crime scene that investigators still haven't matched to a suspect, well, that DNA actually showed up at another crime scene almost 10 years after Holly's murder. What? Mm-hmm. In early 2000, a man named Delwyn Foxworth was beaten with a two-by-four, doused in gasoline, and set on fire. And when authorities investigating that murder analyzed the two-by-four, they found DNA that matched the semen found in Holly's body. So was it a match for Delwyn Foxworth? According to Stephen Mills and Dan Hinkle's reporting for the Chicago Tribune, not only was it not a match for Delwyn, it wasn't even a match for Marvin Williford, the man convicted of Delwyn's murder. So the source material has no information on where this DNA might have come from. I mean, it very well could have been someone who handled this two by four randomly. But this is yet another reminder that eight years after Holly's sexual assault and murder, whoever this guy is, is still out there. And to me, this is also another case where it's just like, why aren't we finding who this guy is? Yeah. And I have something else that's just going to make your head explode. Remember those sneakers that the prosecution made a big deal about to the press, the ones that had Holly's blood on them, supposedly linking Juan to Holly's murder? Yeah. Well, it turns out that these shoes weren't even available for purchase in store until after Holly's death. Hold up. So the shoe that may or may not have belonged to Juan may or may not have had Holly's DNA on it maybe didn't even exist when she was killed? Yeah. And they even tested the DNA sample from the shoe again and get this. It actually was a match for Holly's DNA, but not only Holly's DNA. The test revealed a second DNA source. And when they tested that DNA, it was a match to the semen found in Holly. That doesn't even make sense, though. Like, how? You're right. It doesn't make sense. But there is at least one explanation 
Juan's attorneys in the wrongful conviction suit are saying the only plausible explanation is that the evidence was planted on the shoes by police. And I'm going to assume the police deny this. Well, yeah, but that, along with pretty much everything else about this case, is enough for Juan Rivera to be awarded a $20 million settlement in his wrongful conviction suit. Whoa, did you say $20 million? $20 million. At the time, it was the largest wrongful conviction settlement in U.S. history. That's how bad this case was botched. And look, thank God he was compensated, but no one deserves to spend nearly 20 years in prison for a crime they didn't commit. But this is anything but a happy ending. Juan can't buy back those years that he lost while in jail, no matter how much money he has. Police can't get back the potential leads they let pass them by during all those years they wasted, convinced they had their guy when they obviously didn't. And most important of all, Holly's family cannot get their daughter back. Holly Staker was sexually assaulted and brutally murdered when she was just 11 years old. And the person who did that to her has still not been brought to justice, even though, by my accounts, we still have evidence to work with. And I don't know what's being done now to find that. Even if they still believe they have their guy and they think their guy got off, there's still another mystery to be solved. Who's DNA was found in Holly Staker. And until that is answered, I don't think you can answer any of the other questions in this case. If you have any information that could help investigators finally solve this crime and bring justice to Holly, please contact the Lake County Crime Stoppers at 847 662 2222. You can find all the source material for this episode on our website, crimejunkiepodcast.com. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at crimejunkiepodcast. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Crime Junkie is an audio Chuck production. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Imagine you just got home from work, dinner is ready, wine is chilled, and your man has offered you 15 minutes of heaven in the form of a foot massage. And then he says, your tanning session is now complete. What just happened? You found your escape at Palm Beach Tan. Break from the chaos at a Palm Beach Tan near you and leave rejuvenated. 
take time for yourself at Palm Beach Tan and take that feeling with you wherever you go. Get up to $25 off your first month featuring Australian gold. Perfect man, not included.